Let's have a shutdown. We'll do a shutdown. I'd love to see a shutdown. Here we go again. I got the feeling there's something right it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yes, I'm stuck From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and internet. Blanketing the planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com, says me. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Coming up, some new developments in that Pennsylvania story that we talked about in detail on yesterday's broadcast concerning the Republicans who are defying Orders from the state Supreme Court and now, I guess, from the U.S. Supreme Court as well. Orders to immediately draw up new maps to redistrict the state's U.S. House districts before the 2018 primaries, which start in just a few weeks in Pennsylvania. And frankly, uh, I find it a very disturbing development. So we'll get to that a little bit later in the show, hopefully, uh, as well as our latest Green News report with Desi Doyen. Oh, yes. Hopefully. We'll <laughs> see. We've got a lot to get to today. Uh, but first, since I, I want to have plenty of time for my guest who is uh, standing by. As our friend Heather Digby Parton notes at Salon this week, the mess is getting messier. Boy, howdy, is she right about that, as usual, from the increasing madness over the Trump-Russia investigation, the GOP pushback on it with the House Intelligence Committee's Republican memo purporting to undermine the special counsel's probe, even though to all non-brain-addled Americans, it appears to have helped justify that investigation, in fact, to the Democratic rebuttal memo, to the Republicans' memo in response, and the question now as to whether Donald Trump will allow that Democratic memo to be released to the public at all, to the stock market crashing on Monday and on Tuesday somewhat rebounding, to the continuing propaganda concerning the GOP tax cut and the fallout from it that will require Congress to once again lift the debt ceiling, 
sooner than previously thought due to that huge tax cut, to another possible federal government shutdown in just days when the previous short-term spending bill runs out, to the upcoming March 5 deadline for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that is currently protecting hundreds of thousands of immigrant children from deportation since Trump reversed the Obama-era DACA program. Now they are at risk as of March 5, all of which has led to the uh, brief government shutdown two weeks ago and now new last-minute negotiations to try to avoid another shutdown at the end of this week, with Trump having moved his goalpost for an immigration deal far to the right after Democrats caved on their momentarily courageous stance last time around when they had promised no new Fed, uh, federal funding deals without a DACA and immigration deal to go with it. Add to that the crucial midterm primaries now getting underway. Finally, even as a number of states are a mess while Republicans fight against federal and state court orders to draw new legislative and congressional district maps to fix the illegal and unconstitutional gerrymandering that Republicans have been using in those states since the 2012 elections. And, of course, all of that was before Donald Trump himself on Monday accused Democrats who didn't stand and clap for him during last week's State of the Union address. Yes, that was just one week ago. Uh, he described those Democrats on Monday as being un-American and, yes, treasonous. And I, I suspect I could pile many more messes on top of those messes, like uh, today when Donald Trump called for the government to, yes, be shut down. But all of that is probably enough for now and uh, all, of course, just part of making America great again. Am I right? Well, when things get this messy... We like to call on our friend Digby to help sort it all out and make everything better again. No pressure. Joining us now is the one and only Heather Digby Parton, known far and wide as simply Digby. She is the creator of the long-running Hullabaloo blog. She's a regular contributor at Salon and a winner of the Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. And, of course a longtime friend of the Bradcast, Heather Digby-Parton. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brad. No pressure. No, I'm sure you'll have a yeah. solution to everything I just ran oh, through. absolutely. Uh, sure. But, yeah. but before <laughs> we get to those solutions, uh, Heather, I want to let's start here because I think it actually leads into just about everything else, perversely enough. Donald Trump on Monday in a rally in Cincinnati for his economic policies, uh, speaking even as the Dow was taking a 1,200 point dive. Uh, he was discussing the great success that he imagined he had with his State of the Union address last week and described the reaction from Democrats in the chamber who didn't applaud enough for him, I guess, as un-American and, yes, treasonous. Treasonous? Yes. You're up there. You've got half the room going totally crazy, wild. They loved everything. They want to do something great for our country. And you have the other side... Even on positive news, really positive news, they were like death and un-American, un-American. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? You know. Can we call that treason? Why not? I mean, they certainly didn't seem to love our country very much. 
Okay, there you go. Treason, really, Heather? Let me get your uh, let me get your response to that very quickly. <laughs> well, I I don't think Donald Trump knows <laughs> what that means. Obviously, um, he happens to be the one who is under a counter espionage invest counterintelligence investigation mm-hmm. for uh, potentially conspiring with a foreign country, um, which also isn't technically the uh, definition of treason, but it certainly comes a lot closer <laughs> than uh, some the Democrats not mm-hmm. applauding him at the State of the Union. I mean, look, this, this, it's, it's a perfect illustration of, of how Trump looks at his presidency. It is very simply, you know, it's the Louis XIV, um, you know, slogan, which I guess is apocryphal, but whatever. It's, uh, you know, been around for several centuries, which is l'état c'est moi. I am the state. Which is to say that you, if you don't uh, applaud him, if you don't kiss his ring, if you don't support him and back him in everything he does, you are a traitor to the country. And that's just, un- uh, that is un-American. I mean, that is the exact opposite of everything that Americans have been well, well it's, mm-hmm. the, it's the fundamental basis of our country and our Constitution was the rejection of that idea of, of monarchy. And, and, you know, Trump isn't trying to, you know, literally hasn't sat there and thought through some philosophy that says, I really want to be king. He's too dumb for that. He, this is just how he sees the world, and he's in a, the world's most powerful job, and therefore, you know, he, what he says goes. And, and, and it's at the basis of everything... It's good that you led with that, because that does lead into everything else that we're talking about. It, it really does, and I'm, I'm glad, uh, Heather, that you underscored the fact that, well, A, he doesn't probably even know what treason actually is, but the, 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 the fact that you underscore that it is wildly misused, the word treason, even by yeah. Democrats who, who call whatever they believe that Trump did with Russia, they, they seem to describe that all the time as treason, but it isn't treason. And we got to stop using that word because treason, by the way, is punishable by death. It's the only crime that's actually defined in the Constitution. And uh, so I I thank you for uh, using the, the, the proper description of what uh, Trump is being uh, investigated for. It is not treason. With that in mind, not not to defend Donald Trump uh, for much of anything, but, you know, it's not treason because we're not at war with Russia. No matter right. what, So yeah. people need to understand treason only counts essentially when you're at war. In any event, will uh, will Trump release this uh, uh, Democratic rebuttal memo, uh, the, the re- rebuttal to the Devin Nunes GOP FISA memo that was released uh, a few days ago. You note at Salon today that the corporate media seems to think it's a done deal right now. The House Intel Committee did vote unanimously to do so. The president now has, um, I guess, five days at this point to redact anything that he wishes uh, before deciding if he will approve the memo for release at all. Now, the White House has said they approved the GOP version of the memo in the name of transparency. But, of course, that was a memo including just cherry-picked information that supported sort of Donald Trump's side of this matter. But the Democratic memo will likely do the precise opposite. So why would the White House allow it to be released at this point? 
Well, that that that's my question. I, I don't know why people think it's a done deal. It's like I keep wanting to say, have you met Donald Trump? I mean, <laughs> yes. you know, do you, right. Are you aware of who is in the White House yeah. right now? Yes. Um, but, you know, I suppose that if we lived in a logical political world, that the fact that they had been, you know, going on and on and on, sort of lugubriously making arguments that this is all about transparency and they just want to deal, you know, properly with the FISA oversight, despite, by the way, voting to, you know, make it even more secret, secretive than it already is just yes. two weeks before. Thank you. But nonetheless, this is a, you know, a tremendously, you know, effective argument. We just care about oversight and transparency. And in a logical world, they would sort of be bound by that, right? I mean, you would mm-hmm. expect that the White House would then say, well, you know, we did say it, you know, got to let the other side out. I don't think there's any... Uh, I don't think they feel any necessity to do that. They can find, you know, any number of excuses and reasons not to, or to redact it so severely Mm -hmm. on the basis of some trumped-up, you know, national security risk that that it doesn't even make any sense. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. uh, My feeling about the memo is that it won't change anything one way or the other. I think it's been pretty well aired. Uh, both sides are out there. I think people mm-hmm. understand what the Democrats' position on it is. I think people understand what Devin Nunes is trying to do. People get what Donald Trump, where Donald Trump's interests lie in this whole thing. So I don't think that matters. I'm actually a little bit more interested in the new memos that mm-hmm. Devin Nunes has proposed. He, he claims that uh, he's got five more memos on tap. You know, I mean, this reminds me of, of you know, back in the 50s when when, you know, Joe McCarthy went to Wheeling, West Virginia and pulled out a list, uh, pulled out a piece of paper mm-hmm. out of his jacket and said, I've got a list of 200 communists in the State Department. I can't show them to you, yeah. but I swear to God they're in here. And then later, you know, well, it's 70, and then he said it was 150. And, mm-hmm. You know, this was, this was how that whole thing unfolded. I'm not suggesting this is necessarily, you know, on the same scale, but the uh, the tactic. It's getting there. It's getting there. The tactic of doing <laughs> this, of sort of, and specifically, you know, Nunes has said, in case people don't know, that he's got five more uh, memos on tap uh, uh, as far mm-hmm. as the FBI, the Department of Justice, and now the State Department. So, you know, that of course is the for, was the first McCarthy uh, smear yeah. uh, was of the State Department, which he declared was riddled with communists. And I suspect to those people who are in the uh, in the Department of Justice who have been getting targeted by this nonsense, I, f- I suspect oh. they feel very much like it was, uh, you know, a McCarthy-like blacklist. A lot of people losing their jobs yes. for no other reason other than to uh, political ends for the Trump administration and Devin Nunes, who is their lackey in Congress. You report at Salon, um, Heather, the that the supposedly not insane, not in the Trump bag, uh, Senators Chuck Grassley of Iowa, Lindsey mm-hmm. Graham of South Carolina, that they are likely to do some of the lifting on at least one of these supposedly uh, upcoming memos. Uh, how so? Well, uh, I don't know if people are, you know, that you really have to get deep into the weeds to follow these memo stories and the whole uh, pushback mm-hmm. uh, counter narrative that's been uh, created by the by the right wing, but to try and sort of condense it, mm-hmm. I will say that in this per- one particular aspect of it, and there are a number of tentacles of this right wing pushback, but this this one particular aspect of it is that the the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, led by Chuck Grassley mm-hmm. and uh, which also has Lindsey Graham, um, they found in some documents that they had received. 
uh, over the course from the FBI over the course of the last couple of months. Uh, in particular, they were homing in on this stuff with the Steele dossier, this Christopher Steele dossier. And a, and a month mm-hmm. or so ago, they had referred Christopher Steele back to the FBI under suspicion, saying they suspected him of lying to the FBI. Mm-hmm. It's like the FBI is going, "Hey, you know, we might have noticed, but thanks for you know, <laughs> thanks for checking." Um, but anyway, they, they part of this appears to now be, and this is news that's floating out from all these weird cor- corners of the fever swamp. So it's hard to know who's you know where this is coming from. But the idea is is that apparently in the State Department, a longtime aide of former Secretary of State John Kerry, who was his aide in the in the Senate, and the Obama administration's envoy to Libya, had received a document during at, towards the end of the campaign. Uh, that was written by a man named Cody Shearer. Those of you who followed the, you know, the Whitewater Lewinsky era scandals, his name would might sound familiar to you. Uh, it kind of cropped up in a weird way at the end of the 90s. I won't go into it, but it was a very, very peripheral story to all of that. Mm-hmm. But his name in right-wing conspiratorial circles is familiar. Mm. Um, and he uh, apparently had put together a dossier of his own of a bunch of, he was a, a journalist, a former journalist, and, you know, he had put together some information of his own about, about Trump and Russia. And he passed it on to this friend of his in the State Department, the ex-John Kerry um, right. aide. Right. And he, that John Kerry aide, his name is John Weiner, I think, and he passed it on to, to Christopher Steele, whom he happened to know. And he passed that on. Now, on to- now that none of that has any bearing. By the way, before we go any further with the down this rabbit hole, <laughs> has no bearing on anything. It doesn't matter where the information came from. It doesn't matter who handed it to the FBI. Mm-hmm. None of that is relevant because the FBI will check to see if it's true. See if the facts you know, are true. That's why this whole nonsense over the dossier. Exactly. It, it's like you know, this is crazy talk. You know, oh my God, you know, it touched the hands of a Democrat. Therefore, it must be it must be discounted, and that's right. going to come as a surprise. To most judges, juries, and prosecutors who use uh, information and informants all the time who have agendas. So regardless of whether or not anything comes of this, and it it probably won't because the Mueller investigation is not reliant on the Steele dossier, despite what all these Republicans are trying to say, Mm But nonetheless, this this had the name of Cody Shearer attached to it. It had a Democrat, you know, mm-hmm. uh, by the name of John Weiner, who was a Kerry associate. And this is the part that really got him going. You can just imagine Chuck Grassley and, and Lindsey Graham and Devin Nunes and the rest of these guys just getting very excited because apparently Steele put a Post-it note on top of the piece of paper that he handed to the FBI with this Cody Shearer um, you know, mm-hmm. dossier or bit of information that had the name Sidney Blumenthal on it. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, you know what that means, sure. and I'm sure people who are listening here know what that means. I mean, they uh, that was just enough to say, all right, you know, that we, we've got them. And uh, I don't have any, I don't think Blumenthal had anything to do with this. I think he's just someone who mm-hmm. knew Cody Shearer at one time. But regardless, that's what's got them going. And so, he's, he's an old friend of the old friend of the Clintons, so of right. course all of this makes it all a, uh, a Clinton right. conspiracy. It's a great Clinton conspiracy. And in fact, yeah. Devin Nunes went on 
on um, uh, Sean Hannity. I uh, have that, actually. Yeah, let me play oh, that good. clip, because I was going to ask you about that next. But I yeah. wanted to uh, sort of just underscore the point you made that, you know, this was Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham seeking uh, an invest- a criminal investigation, mm-hmm. I guess, from the uh, from the DOJ. This is not Devin Nunes, who was, right. you know, easily sort of dismissed as a, you know, a partisan uh, Trumper who was actually on the Trump transition team. This is Grassley and, and, and Graham making this. So when we say, when you know, when you compare it to uh, uh, McCarthyism, to some extent, yeah, this is not just one crazy guy. This right. is some uh, top-line uh, Republicans who are joining this scheme. Uh, but here's where I think, uh, and, and, and you're going here, and I want to play this audio, because here's where I think that Democrats actually do have a bit of a problem with with the way they have been waging their Trump Russia battle, and uh, you may disagree with me here, but you you cited this comment from uh, Congressman Devin Nunes in response to Sean Hannity on his Fox News show on uh, on Monday night. Let me let me play the comment, and then we'll talk about it. Are there crimes committed here? Well, you can't really make this up. I hope the listeners understood what you what you just said. Uh, you have we have a clear link to Russia. You have a campaign who hired a law firm, who hired Fusion GPS, who hired a foreign agent who went and got information from the Russians on, an, on the other campaign. It seems like the counterintelligence investigation should have been opened up against the Hillary campaign when they got a hold of the dossier. But that didn't happen either. So he's making the argument that it is Hillary who has the Russia problem here. Now, mm-hmm. you dismiss that as sort of the, I think you call it the, I know, I know you are, but what am I strategy. But I actually think that this is a problem for Democrats. And this is something that uh, our friend uh, Marcy Wheeler over at Empty Wheel, that she's been sort of trying to point out for months. If it's a problem that Donald Trump Jr., for example, had a meeting to get dirt from Russian agents on Hillary Clinton in that Trump Tower meeting, why isn't it a problem that the Democrats and Hillary Clinton paid money to get dirt from Russian agents on Trump via the uh, via the Steele dossier. No matter what you think of the actual information that they got, isn't it a problem in and of itself that if the Democrats are going to, you know, use that Trump Jr. meeting as, you know, aha, look, there's the collusion he met to get dirt from Russians. Didn't Hillary Clinton and the DNC ultimately really do the same thing? Well, I think on on you know, on some level, if you're talking about just oppo research, both sides did it. There mm-hmm. is a difference, however, between the two. One is is that the the degrees of separation between the actual Clinton campaign and the law firm Fusion GPS, mm-hmm. and then and then uh, Christopher Steele, who was a Russia, who was a former MI6 agent mm-hmm. and uh, of an ally of the United States, was talking to Russians. Now, if you assume that the Russian agents in, in, in Russia were manipulating Christopher Steele to create this um, false uh, information about Donald Trump, mm-hmm. then it tracks, because then you're saying that, okay, the Clinton campaign was being manipulated by the Russian government and being infiltrated, and they were trying to help Hillary Clinton win the election. Now, I don't think that's what happened. I think, you know, if you're looking at the, ba- at the broad principle that, mm-hmm. well, oppo research is a dirty business and they shouldn't have done it, the problem is for Donald Trump Jr. and the entire Trump campaign, there were Russians crawling all over it. 
it wasn't just that. There was all this other Well, and, and that's right. Including the hacking of the Democratic National Committee, John Podesta and the DCCC, all of which was benefiting Republicans. And by the way, in particular, the DCCC um, hacking is an area that has not been adequately explored because that really was helpful to uh, a number of Republicans, and and that is something that you know may explain Devin Nunes and Paul Ryan's eagerness to cover this whole thing up. Uh, maybe it's not just Trump; it, they may be actually helping themselves. But I mean, I think that's what it is. I mean, you know, yes, you can look at the principle and say, yes, Oppo's Oppo. Who cares? You know, they're meeting in Trump Tower, but, and Christopher Steele's over in Russia. Yeah. You know, they're both doing that. But I'm but not, I, because I'm not even, uh, yeah, oppo research, you know, this is a case where, yes, both sides do do it, and you can like it or not like it, think it's a dirty business or not. My point is that if Democrats are going to be focusing, you know, all of the things you mentioned, uh, Russia hacking this and that and this and that, if Russia did do that right now, to my knowledge, there's no tie to the Trump campaign or even to Republicans that they were actually involved in it. Instead, when people talk about collusion and when I ask people about this, they say, oh, well, what it was that meeting at Trump Tower uh, with those Russians. So if you're going to put and a lot of Democrats are putting a lot of a lot of focus on that meeting, which is fine. But as Marcy has uh, Marcy Wheeler at Empty Wheel has pointed out time and time again, this is going to be a potential problem for for the uh, Democrats or for even for Robert Mueller, if that's what the entire case hangs on, because they do have this other side where Democrats did something at least very similar, I think more similar than they're than they're willing to say. Well, maybe I think I think maybe there's a there, you know you can make the case that the people who were involved mm-hmm. and I mean I'm not trying to defend it. I, you know, no, and it doesn't I, mean I, they didn't. I, they it doesn't. I'm not trying to suggest that you know the Trump and Team Trump didn't do all of the things that Democrats are accusing them of. I'm just saying if you're going to use that one point, I think there is a problem with well, potentially with that argument. I'll unless tell you, you something. Yeah. I think there's an excellent chance that there's going to be a special prosecutor and that they're going to prosecute Hillary Clinton, and I think that's probably going to happen. I've thought that from the very beginning. So I think that this is going to be played out all the way, and I think she's the one who will go to jail, not Donald Trump. One more question here before I get to a break. The the question of whether this, you know, you and I uh, see what Devin Nunes and the rest of them are doing for the nonsense that it is. But there is a question if this uh, effort to undermine the investigation even if it means undermining the DOJ and the FBI itself, is actually working. And I ask because an Axios poll conducted over the weekend found that 38 percent of Republicans, just 38 percent of Republicans, approve of the Bureau, of the FBI. Mm -hmm. That's compared to 47 percent who disapprove now of the FBI. That that a majority of Republicans now disapprove of the FBI. That seems unthinkable, frankly, for a party that pretends to love law enforcement, uh, in particular the longtime very Republican FBI itself. Doesn't that suggest that what you and I are scoffing at may actually be working on the at I, least on the Republican side? I certainly think it's working. I, I really have no doubt. I mean what it's working on is a particular group of people, and it's a large faction of the Republican Party, maybe even most. 
I mean, that 47% that you're talking about, I think there's another, you know, percentage that aren't sure, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that might, what we might have thought in the past would be sure that the FBI was on the up and up. Mm-hmm. I think that it's working quite well. I mean, I, and this is a result of the general polarization in our politics, which Donald Trump is, you know, sort of a, a symptom of, not actually a creator of it. I mean, this is something that, that predates him and also, for, you know, sort of enabled him. I mean, that is what, what, made, it, what made Donald Trump possible was the fact that this, the, this group of people within the Republican Party, this majority, were able to do it, and then, tr- you know, good old party loyalty and tribalism kicked in for the general election. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's working fine. I think they know exactly what they're doing. And by the way, you know, I just want to make one point clear as we sort of look back in history and everybody's going, oh, back in the old days when the Republicans were all... You know, they, they were so much, such great statesmen, and they stepped up, and they didn't let this happen. That's not true. <laughs> That's just not true. Back in, the, in Watergate, I did a whole bunch of, mm-hmm. I did a whole series of posts on this. You know, most Republicans also backed Nixon to the hills. Yeah. It, you know, his, his ratings didn't start to really decline until, uh, you know, the, the tapes came out, until it really got ugly, mm. and, you know, and, and the, the impeachment was imminent. I mean, this was something they stuck with him for a very long time. Now, granted, he started off much higher because he, you know, he won in a landslide in 72, so he had a, you know, he had a, a stronger base to begin with. But nonetheless, I mean, this is, I think how these things play out, it takes a while for people, you know, it looks to, yeah. to us, we look at Trump and go, oh my God, you know, this guy is a, is a menace to the planet. I mean, how can anybody, you know, everything about yeah. him is offensive. <laughs> you know, how can, how can anyone back him? But I think that kind of partisan loyalty um, ha- is always part of these stories, and I think it's always something that you have to look at. And it goes on both sides. I'm not just condemning the Republicans for that. Nah, feel free, Heather Digby Parton. <laughs> uh, Stan, can you? Uh, I'm running ridiculously late. Can you? Can you stick around for uh, one more quick segment because yes, I want to yes. ask you about the shutdown and all of that? Yes, all right, oh God. stand by. Uh, Heather Digby Parton. We'll be back with her on the other side of this break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. And you tell me. Oh, I believe we're on the eve of destruction. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We may be on the eve of another federal government shutdown. Speaking with our friend Heather Digby-Parton of Hullabaloo and Salon. 
Uh, Heather, shortly before air today, Donald Trump said that he would love to see a shutdown if Democrats don't agree to back his immigration changes. Here's what he said uh, just moments ago. Let's have a shutdown. We'll do a shutdown. And it's worth it for our country. I'd love to see a shutdown if we don't get this stuff taken care of. And by the way, the world is laughing at us because they can't believe these policies. They don't have it. No other country in the world has what we have. Well, I don't know that the world is laughing at us because of that. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, Heather, uh, what he said there, uh, I'd love a shutdown, I'd love a shutdown, that sounds like a negotiating tactic to me. But compared to the House Democratic uh, whip, uh, Steny Hoyer, uh, who's uh, reported comment today that there's apparently a a proposed one-year fix to DACA, and that he said it would be irresponsible, it would be bad for the country, but that it's not off the table. So I think Donald Trump is a lousy negotiator, despite his undeserved reputation for being a great deal maker. But is it fair to say the Democrats, whether it's Steny Hoyer in the House or Chuck Schumer in the Senate, may be even worse, Heather? <laughs> they may be. And, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert on negotiation. I'm a terrible salesperson, you know, I'm I'm sort of, yeah, whatever you want, you know, I'll go along with it. So, you know, I would not be good at this job, but just as as an observer, this is a mess, and it's been a mess. And, you know, just giving the Democrats just a little bit of of slack on Mm -hmm. the fact that this immigration problem, and the DACA kids especially, has been out there for a long time, and they have tried. Obama tried, they tried. This is a very, very difficult situation. And, um, you know, I think the problem for the Democrats was is that they thought when Donald Trump was elected because of his promises, oh, the kids, I love the kids, and yes, he was a hardcore immigration hawk who cared about the DACA kids, that they would be able to, that he, if he, if he worked with them, that they could, he had the credibility to bring along the Freedom Caucus and all these right-wing anti-immigration hawks Mm -hmm. in the Congress and get the DACA kids some security and get them safe. I think they thought that was possible because Trump, that was the game that Trump talked, Mm -hmm. and that maybe this would be one, you know, moment, even from the minority, that if they could leverage him to do this, that they would. It turns out, that he's a complete mess. He has no clue how the government works. He doesn't know how to negotiate. You know, he did go bankrupt four times. So let's talk about how, you know, what a great negotiator he is. I mean, the guy's not, you know, he's a, he's a con man, and he has managed to evade accountability <laughs> through his entire career. But that doesn't mean, you know, that his, his uh, deal-making talent has been uh, exaggerated. Let's just put that Well, way. his deal-making talent appears to be uh, the willingness to negotiate in bad faith. He will lie. He will offer right. deals that he then has no intention of keeping or somebody tells him, no, don't keep it and you know move the goalposts. So, I mean, if you want to negotiate with Donald Trump, uh, you're dealing with somebody who is dealing in bad faith. I don't know how you negotiate with. I'm an OK negotiator. But when you're dealing with someone who's in bad faith, I don't even know how you deal with that. And I don't either. What do you? What? How, I don't know how people. I should. I should do some research on that. You know, how do you deal with people who yeah. are negotiating in bad faith? Because I honestly don't know how this can. How how we can function? Now you could assume that maybe the Republicans 
who who perhaps I mean they all deal in bad faith too, but they're not complete idiots about how the government works, and there may be some ways that they could have done it. Now, my feeling was, and I think I maybe mentioned this to you last time I was on, was that you know Lindsey Graham thought he had this had this nailed, and that's why he was you know basically mm-hmm. kissing the the ring for months. Was he thought he could he had the uh, Trump's proxy. Mm-hmm. And he could go into negotiations and and negotiate on Trump's behalf. And of course, that was all blown up on the you know the asshole comments mm-hmm. and that whole madness. So uh, you know that part of it, we now know that there's nobody who can really speak for Trump, and there's nobody who within the Republican Party who really even knows where he's going to be at. And then, so we're back to where we were, right before Trump ever came into it. And we've got the House Freedom Caucus and all these these you know xenophobic zealots in the in the Republican Party who have actually gotten worse over the years, yeah. even you know from where they were when we tried to do mm-hmm. the Dream Act back in, back in what was it 2007, mm-hmm. um, or the Gang of Eight that fell apart. Now they're even worse than they were then. The Democrats have virtually no power and they don't have a president. So this is all a very very big mess. I mean. I don't know what Steny Hoyer was talking about. I don't know what they're talking, you know, I mean, you hear these things kind of, you know, coming out from different sources. Um, but, uh, you know, I suspect that, that Democrats at this point are probably just trying to get what they can. And if that means a year um, extension on DACA, which, you know, I don't think Trump's going to do that. But, you know, if they could get it, it would be better than well, nothing. Well, they, they got to stop showing their hands because, yeah. you know, they're, they're not dealing with someone who's dealing in good faith. Now you've got uh, General uh, John Kelly, the Trump chief of staff. Oh, he's the worst. Saying uh, some immigrants were, quote, too lazy to get off their asses and sign up for DACA, uh, which is, you know, looks like they might have been very smart not to sign up for DACA at this point. Uh, Some folks and this will have to be our last question here now, uh, but some folks had for a while, you know, taken some measure of comfort in in John Kelly as as Trump's chief of staff. Uh, that he could keep his worst impulses in check. But when it comes to immigration, at least, Kelly seems to be running the hard line on this, along with the uh, White House advisor, Stephen Miller, as much as anybody else. Is is that the, the sense that you get? I don't think there's anybody in the White House willing to negotiate on good faith on this issue at this point. There is not. He is a hardcore anti-immigrant, anti-immigration uh, hardliner, this he and he has been, and I knew this before he was even named to the DHS. I wrote a piece about it. I'm going, you know, this guy is like the worst possible choice. He he spent years as the as the head of uh, Southern Command mm-hmm. when you know following narco terrorism, and he's you know basically, I mean, he wa- he wants that wall as badly as Trump does, and I don't trust him in the least to do anything to try and get this deal through. Uh, I think. You know, I'll be honest. I think they want to deport the DACA kids. I think they really want to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. we're seeing stories of people being deported all over the place yep. who are not criminals, who did nothing to deserve it, other than, you know, have American children and work at jobs and pay their taxes. And they're being deported by ICE under Trump, who said, go for it. And they are being dumped down in the middle of Mexico or wherever they're going. And they're just sort of sitting there going, I- I'm, I'm a stranger in a strange land. I don't know. They're Americans. And, they, and I think that is what these people want to see. I think they want 
to see that happen. So I have no faith that this is actually going to work out. I'm sorry to say, because it's the most horrible outcome I can imagine. So the Democrats are lousy negotiators. Donald Trump negotiates in bad faith. And that means we have to rely on... Senator Mitch McConnell to do the uh-huh. right thing and allow a vote on all of this somehow in in the Senate. What could possibly go wrong? As <laughs> you say, the mess is getting messier. I got to get out. Heather, always great talking to you. Hope to do it Thank again you. in the near future. Check out uh, her work, as always, at Salon.com and at her blog, Hullabaloo, which is digbysblog.blogspot.com and on the Twitters at digby 56 Thanks, Heather. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, do you feel any better now, Desi Doyen? <laughs> no, actually, not really? not really at all. What really disturbed me is is when she tossed in there that that they're probably going to try, the Republicans are probably going to try to push this into prosecution of Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's authoritarian book 101, where you go after your political opponents on trumped-up charges. I mean, that's very disturbing. All of this is very disturbing to me. It is all very disturbing, and I worry that... Um the Democrats are sort of, uh, you know, w- watching Trump, watching uh, this Russia investigation, putting a whole bunch of eggs in that basket, when at the same time, this is a Republican Party that is just going completely south. Absolutely lawless, as you have been saying all along here, that they have really descended into this lawlessness, this madness, where they apparently are willing to do just about anything to hold on to power. So speaking of holding on to power, lawlessness and, uh, well, Republicans who will just do anything to, 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 to hang on to that power... This uh, new development out of Pennsylvania, we're going to get to that in a moment, as well as the latest Green News report with Desi Doyen. That is all after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, I I had wanted to ask, we ran out of time there, I wanted to ask um, Heather uh, about uh, whether she thought Donald Trump was actually going to sit down with Robert Mueller at any time. (laughs) Uh, He now, his attorneys are now advising him against it. Most of his attorneys, one attorney is saying uh, he should uh, do the interview. I think there's no way in hell Donald Trump is going to sit down and do an interview with Robert Mueller unless he is subpoenaed. And even then, he might not. Even oh, then, I'm, he might challenge it. They would be smart to, to wriggle out of it any way they any can. Any way that they can. Uh, even in their case, if it uh, means defying the rule of law, which is what Republicans are now doing more and more these days. So I want to talk about that. 
uh, and what's going on right now in Pennsylvania, which is just mind-blowing. We'll talk about that after our latest Green News report. I'm not, I do not have any kind of expertise or even much layman's study of, of the climate change issues. Trump withdraws nomination of climate science denier to top environmental post. It is dry in Southern California and we've got a drought going now and it's uh, not going to get any better anytime soon. Drought returns with a vengeance to California and the Southern U.S. ExxonMobil pulled in an extra $8 billion in profits thanks to the Republicans' tax cut. Plus, California's governor hits the accelerator on a statewide electric vehicle network. All of that electrifying news and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It seems to me that you don't believe climate change is real. I, I, am, uns- I am uncertain. You're uncertain. No, no, I'm not. I'm sorry. I was. I, was, I jumped ahead of my time. Is, is of course, is of course real. <laughs> Nailed it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, this lady Kathleen Hartnett White was actually nominated by the White House to advise them on environmental quality? Yes, that's right. And now her nomination has been withdrawn by the Trump White House. She was supposed to lead the White House Council on Environmental Quality. Former Texas environment official Kathleen Hartnett White got considerable backlash for her previous comments denying climate science and the benefits of pollution regulations. And in her Senate confirmation hearing back in November, her blatant lack of scientific expertise led even some Senate Republicans to question her ability to lead that science policy office. Here she is in an exchange with Democratic Senator and climate hawk Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Do you think that if the ocean warms, it expands? Does the law of thermal expansion apply to seawater? Again, I'm, I'm not, I do not have any kind of expertise or even much layman's study of, of the ocean um, dynamics and the climate change issues. In other words, she's saying that she doesn't even know the basic scientific concept of whether water expands when it warms. So I'm inclined to ask how the hell was she nominated at all to an environmental post by the Trump administration? But I think we know the answer to that. Maybe the bigger question is how the hell was she ever an environmental official in Texas? Well, Texas. Oh, yeah, that's right. And at the time, Rick Perry was the governor. Indeed. And as if to underscore the necessity of science-based policy in preparing for climate impacts, Cape Town, South Africa, on the precipice of being the first major city in the world to run out of water due to the worst drought in more than 100 years. City officials this week have cut in half the individual daily water allowance for the city's 4 million residents, but they have put off day zero until May for now, thanks to cuts in agricultural allotments to farms. Day zero, meaning the day they run out of water in Cape Town, South Africa completely? That's right. Man. In other news, thanks to that deficit-exploding tax cut passed by Republicans and signed by Donald Trump, ExxonMobil is going to pull in nearly $7 billion in extra profits this year. According to the Houston Chronicle, Exxon's fourth quarter profits for 2017 more than quadrupled over the same period last year boosted by the tax cut bill despite an overall decline. 
time in Exxon's actual oil production. Without the tax cuts, Exxon's fourth quarter profits would have fallen below this time last year. Profits would have fallen, but they would still be making huge profits whether they had gotten smaller or not. Indeed, they would. And now they're getting huger again. Yes, they are. Congratulations, ExxonMobil. Back to California. It's headed into another drought, according to federal officials, as precipitation has fallen far below normal during what is supposed to be the state's rainy season, with snowpack near historic lows that were set during the state's historic drought back in 2015. The U.S. Drought Monitor also reported that drought has returned with a vengeance to nearly half of the United States. Forty percent of the nation is now in moderate to severe drought, with the worst conditions hitting the southern and western parts of the country. But finally, some good news for California. Governor Jerry Brown has issued an executive order greatly expanding the state's electric vehicle infrastructure, tapping billions of dollars in revenue raised from polluting industries in the state's cap-and-trade emissions program. California will now invest $2.5 billion to build 250,000 charging stations and 200 hydrogen refueling stations by 2025. They'll also increase consumer rebates for pollution-free electric vehicles with a goal of reaching 5 million zero emissions vehicles in the state by 2030. At least 35 percent of the investments are designated for low-income communities. Nice. Come on out to California. Enjoy an electric car, but please bring your own water. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Oh, ain't it the truth. <laughs> Who would want to, though? Weather's good. Thank you very much, uh, Desi Doyen. I want to, I've been uh, teasing this. Uh, Yesterday we talked at great length about what's going on in Pennsylvania, where you had the state Supreme Court order the Republican state legislature to redraw all of the U.S. House district maps in time for the 2018 primaries, which begin in May there. So they have to do it quickly. The state Supreme Court ordered the state legislature to do this because they found that Republicans had been gerrymandering all of the districts across the state of Pennsylvania, such that this pretty much 50-50 state, although Democrats have a, a lead in uh, in registrations in the state, but it's pretty much a, a swing state, a 50-50 state. Nonetheless, the way the Republicans have unlawfully gerrymandered the U.S. House districts has resulted in, for the last three elections in a, in a row, 13 Republican congressmen versus five Democratic congressmen. More than 70 percent of the seats, despite having only a 50-50 split. Correct. And as a matter of fact, um, all three statewide offices are you know, Democrats. And yet the Republicans have gamed the system. Okay, so the state Supreme Court orders the legislature to make these changes immediately to the uh, U.S. House maps. They basically refuse to do so in the GOP-controlled legislature. 
They appeal this decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, which kind of laughs them out of uh, just for, says forget about it. Even uh, Samuel Alito, who oversees the state of Pennsylvania in cases like that. And so they have to do this. But before they were even uh, before they even appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, Joe Scarnati, the Republican president of the Senate, said he was going to refuse to do it. He had refused orders from the state Supreme Court to turn over documents that have to do with districting. So he's just laughing at the court order. Despite the state Supreme Court and now the U.S. Supreme Court both telling the state of Pennsylvania, yes, you must redraw your districts. Well, even with that decision from the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday, Republicans are still trying everything they can to uh, undermine the rule of law, undermine the court orders. And uh, one representative, Republican representative by the name of Chris Dush, in the state legislature put out a memorandum to all House members concluding that what the state Supreme Court is doing is somehow unlawful as a violation of the Pennsylvania Constitution and that the five justices who voted in favor of this immediate redistricting that they must now be impeached, impeached, removed from office. Because they found that the Pennsylvania state constitution makes it unlawful what the Republicans have done with the U.S. House districts. So that was a decision five to two by the state Supreme Court. Now Chris Dush puts out this memo saying the five justices who signed this order that blatantly and clearly contradicts the plain language of the Pennsylvania constitution engaged in misbehavior in office... Oddly enough, the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't seem to think so, even though that's a stolen Republican majority there, too. And Dush writes, uh, Wherefore, each is guilty of an impeachable offense warranting removal from office and disqualification to hold any office or trust or profit under this commonwealth. I would ask you to please join me in co-sponsoring this legislation. So there is a move in Pennsylvania now from an elected representative to try to remove five of the seven Supreme Court justices on the state Supreme Court. The ones who ruled against them. Those are the only ones they want to Because they did not like their ruling. And they are therefore going to remove them from office. So when we talk about how the Republican Party has gone south, who no longer gives a damn about the rule of law about lawful court orders, it's this sort of thing that we're talking about. And it's this sort of thing I would suggest uh, folks take very seriously and take notice of very seriously all across the country. Aaron Anthony, a candidate for uh, for U.S. Congress in Pennsylvania, he's running against uh, Keith Rothfuss uh, in the 12th, what used to be the 12th Congressional District in Pennsylvania. Uh, He put out a statement saying it is not hyperbole to suggest that what Mr. Dush is proposing is a threat to our democracy. Americans everywhere are sitting at their dinner table tonight wondering where we draw the line in the march towards authoritarianism. This is the line, he says. I would have to agree with Mr. Anthony there. Now, some people say, well, this is just uh, one guy in the uh, in in the Republican uh, House you know, trying to get other people on board. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, Josh Chaffetz, professor of law at Cornell Law School, uh, said, uh, tweeted uh, today or last night, your regular reminder that the fact that one state legislator proposed something that you find outrageous means nothing whatsoever, absent some indication that the proposal has some chance of going somewhere. Good point. Good point to keep that in mind. Right now, this is just one guy. But as Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter at Slate and friend of the show, uh, he tweeted in response to Chaffetz. He had a few thoughts um, on Twitter in this uh, thread that I think all of this is worth noting. He writes three points. One, North Carolina's HB2, that was their huge omnibus election reform bill described as the worst voter suppression bill since the Jim Crow era, which was eventually completely killed by the courts after it was found to have, quote, targeted African-Americans with surgical precision. Uh, He says HB2 went from an outrageous proposal to law in just 12 hours. Nine months later in North Carolina, a series of absurd Republican bills went from rough drafts to the government governor's desk in just days. He says it's naive to take a wait and see approach with today's GOP. Mark is absolutely right. That's his first point. Second point, the standard, quote, some chance of going somewhere, unquote, uh, is highly subjective, says Mark. But it surely applies in Pennsylvania, where GOP legislative leaders have already defied court orders in a desperate attempt to maintain their illegal gerrymander in the state. Yes, the president of their state Senate is refusing state Supreme Court orders to turn over documents to the state Supreme Court. Mark says it is eminently reasonable to to speculate that Pennsylvania Republicans might rally around the impeachment of justices who may soon hold them in contempt of court for their flagrant defiance of the law. That's right. They may be held in uh, contempt of court for what they're doing. So sure, why not impeach them? Get rid of them. And then the contempt of court, I guess, goes away. Three, Mark notes, the easiest place to kill a bill is in a subcommittee. If legislators notice that a proposal has become dangerously controversial, they might pull it well before it hits the floor, gains momentum, and becomes a cause celeb. Asking reporters to ignore a controversial bill until it gains serious traction, says Mark, is akin to saying, just ignore this dangerous measure until it has too much momentum to be stopped. Today's GOP thrives on that kind of naivete, he says, and we should not play along. I agree. All good points to keep in mind from Mark Joseph Stern, especially these days in this political atmosphere of madness when nothing receives the appropriate attention and sunlight from media that it seems to deserve. Uh, at least until it's too late to do anything about it. So please pay attention. We will keep our eyes on that story in Pennsylvania. Make noise. Thank you. Yes, please. Uh, I got to get out. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Salon's Heather Digby-Parton, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider... Uh, stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. You are the only thing that keeps us on your public airwaves to do whatever it is we do every day. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.